0: If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening God bless. Morning, guys. I will warn you ahead of time that the roosters are on rampage today. I don't know what the deal is. No, but like all morning, they've just been going off. I think there's a conspiracy because there's more of them. They're like going out during the week to recruit more roosters to come in. I don't know what their deal is. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're just, maybe they're actually just saying amen. Maybe that's it. Maybe I've misread the whole thing. You know what, Natalie? You are right on. All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 with that. Only there's a lot of churches that have a rooster problem. It's just kind of unique to us. It's fun though. All right, Romans chapter 8, we're continuing our study through the book of Romans, and if you remember back to last week, we had a bit of a theological minefield in the text that we had last week, and so this week comes as a little bit of a relief to that, in that we have one of the most beautiful and encouraging proclamations this morning of God's love for us and His faithfulness towards us in all of Scripture, No, no question about it, and so As we pray in just a moment, and as we read this text, and as we study today, let your heart be encouraged. This is a celebratory text, right? Cultivate just this spirit of gratitude and allow the Lord to stir your heart for worship. This is a worshipful text. It should be a passage that is to be celebrated. Let's just read it. You'll see what I mean instantly. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and it says this. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He then, not also in Him freely give us all things? And who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ. The one who died, yes, rather was raised and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Somebody please say amen. Like, we could just read that a couple more times and go home. Like, It's that deep, that rich, that beautiful. So let's pray as we dig into it. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We don't want in any way to just work through them today and leave without being in awe of who you are and what you've done. The commitment and the faithfulness that you have the love that you've expressed. Lord, would you speak to our hearts on these things, your spirit fall in this place. Help us to grasp the unfathomable love that you have for us and your commitment now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will finish up chapter 8 today. And... When we get to chapter nine, it becomes kind of a new section, Chapter nine does. It starts to talk about how all of the things that Paul's been talking about in the Romans are in, in the book of Romans previously, how they relate to Israel, and how the church is to view and understand the promises given to Israel. That happens in chapter nine. So what that means for us this morning is that this last portion of chapter eight is kind of a conclusion or a wrapping up of the first half of the book of Romans. Paul has talked about so far in the explaining to us the gospel. He's given us the bad news, right? That's where we started. The human condition of those that are apart from Christ, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He then told us that we are helpless to do anything about that condition, and that even our greatest attempt... At keeping the law of God is going to fail miserably. Therefore, because that is true, for those that are without Christ, we're under judgment. And he uses this heaviest of terms, the wrath of God. We are headed then at that point for the wrath of God. And that's really, really bad news, right? But then, of course, he turns the corner and he gives us the good news that while the wages of sin is death, the Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And therefore, having been justified by faith, because we have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are then encouraged in chapters 6, 7, and the first portion of 8, to live accordingly. We are now to die to sin and live for Christ, to put away that old sinful life more and more and allow the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ more and more. And then we're told of the hardship and suffering that comes as a part of just life in this world and as a part of living out the Christian life, that it's not easy, but through it all we're supposed to have this eternal perspective. That's what verse 18 told us. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. And then for anyone who would doubt God's goodness because of the hardship of this world and what they might be going through, we're given verse 28, which says, we know that God causes all things, including the tough things, the bad things, the hard things, all things to work together for good. For those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And then, for those that are afraid that they're not strong enough to make it through the Christian life, right? Because we might be sitting there going, but I don't think I'm going to make it. Lord, I, I just, it's so difficult. I don't know that I can cling to you hard enough that I can hold on with my grip hard enough. Then Paul tells us it's not about us holding on. It's about the fact that God has us, that He foreknew us, meaning that He loved us before the foundations of the earth, that He predestined us, meaning that He is the one that engineered the way of our salvation. And He's the one that called us. And He's the one that justified us, meaning that He provided the means of our salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And He will be the one that will complete the final work of glorification in us when He calls us home. That was the whole purpose of what we covered last week in verse 29 and 30. Though some have needlessly made that a whole theological battlefield and there's been all kind of battles over it, that wasn't the point of it. It was meant to be an encouragement that God has got us. And so for the remaining verses of chapter 8, Paul now drives that point home, that God loves us, that he is committed to us, and he will be faithful to the very end. And the way that Paul is going to communicate these truths are through five rhetorical questions. And these questions are meant to cause us to think, to to cause us to ponder and focus on the commitment that God has for us, His dedication to each one of us. So we're going to look at these five questions. The first of these questions is there in verse 31. So look again at verse 31. It says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? Well, It is important to note that the question is not, who is against us? It's not just merely, are there things against us? Because if that were the only question, there would be a long list, would there not? Satan's against us. All the demons of hell are against us. Much of popular culture is antithetical to the Christian life and Christian worldview and values. Our old sin nature within us wages war within us, it says in Romans chapter 7. 7 verse 23, there there are many things in this world that are competing against God for our time and our attention and our affection and our thoughts and our efforts. So there are even other people that are opposed to us. There's days where it feels like the whole world's against you. So if the question was just, is there something against us, it'd be a big long list. And in Paul's day in context, you could add to that persecution. He was persecuted by local leaders, religious leaders, government officials. He was persecuted by all sorts of people. So there's plenty of things that we could say are against us, but that's not the thrust of the question. The question is, in light of God being for you, who or what could overcome you, right? Right? Paul is arguing that what we have is greater. And if we have the greatest power that exists, and if God is therefore for us, if He is on our side, no one or no thing can defeat us. Victory is assured in God. And so someone might say, well, for sure, for sure, God is the most powerful. He is the creator of all and able to do anything. But how do I know he's for me? Like, like how could I be assured of his commitment to me? How do I really know that he's for us? Well, that brings us to that second rhetorical question there in verse 32. This is how. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He also, with Him, not freely give us all things? The argument here is that if God has already gone to the greatest length, if He's already given you the best that He has, if He's already sacrificed the most that He could sacrifice, What good thing would he withhold from you then? He's already so invested in you through the cross. How is he not going to now complete that good work that he started? And so verse 32 is to point us to the cross. And anytime that you or I doubt God's love or his commitment or his faithfulness to us, we look to the cross. Because if you're standing at the foot of the cross, you can only say, God is for me, committed to me, faithful forever. Because the cross is the greatest display of God's love and commitment ever, period. And that's his point. You know he's committed. You know he's all in because of the sacrifice From there, he takes us into the third and fourth rhetorical question. And as he does, Paul employs this imagery of a court of law. In the third of the questions, you can find it there in verse 33, it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And so the question is, who's going to bring this charge? And the picture is a court of law where the accused is called to now stand before the court where he and her have the charges read against them. And again, the question is not just whether there are charges against us or whether we might be guilty of those charges, because if the question is, are there charges, the answer is what? A resounding yes. We are without a doubt guilty of the charges. But Paul dealt with that back in chapter 3 when he says, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later in chapter 3 he said, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There are none righteous, not even one. And so the question is not just are there charges, but again the heart of the question is the work of God. Who can bring a charge against a child of God in light of the fact that God himself is the one who is justified? And so in the imagery of the courtroom, the point is no prosecution will succeed since God himself, who is the final judge and the final authority, has himself Declared us not guilty by allowing another to take our guilt and our punishment. The question is not whether we're guilty, we are guilty, but God. We're guilty, but God. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Look at what it says You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of of this world according to the prince power of the air and the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest but what are the next two words but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Because God is the one who has done the justifying. And that word justify means to be brought into right standing with God. And God is the one who provided the means for us to be made right with him. That's the whole point. How is He going to be the one who's going to condemn you when He is the very one that made you right with Him by placing all of our guilt and all of our sin upon Jesus on the cross? So that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, it meant that the charges against us were paid in full. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You... "...who were formerly afar away from God, you were enemies of God and separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now He, He did the work of justifying, has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in the physical body. And as a result, He has brought you into His own presence... And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Thank you, Lord. That's what justification means. Then we get to the fourth question, and it also employs this court of law language. Look at verse 34. Who is the one then that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. The question is, who will condemn you? And now the picture is that of a judge sitting high up on his bench, pronouncing a sentence as he hammers down the gavel and sending you to your punishment. That's what being condemned is. And the question is, who then is going to be this judge? Who's going to condemn you? The answer was given in the very first verse of chapter 8. Look at verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is none. It continues by saying, And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And the law of Moses was unable to save you because of the weakness of of our sinful nature so God did what the law could not do he sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have and in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins and then back to that legal language he says he did so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Jesus paid it all. It was paid in full. And so the point that Paul is making is, certainly it's not Jesus who will condemn you, because he's the very sacrifice for your freedom. And then he goes on in verse 34 to say, not only did he die for you, but he was raised. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, And he intercedes for you, meaning that not only was he your sacrifice in the past, but now he's still working on your behalf as he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you, so certainly Christ is for you. And so using then the imagery of the court of law, the point of verse 33 and 34 is this, that the case is closed. The charges and the condemnation that were ours, genuinely ours, and we were genuinely guilty of, have been dealt with on the cross. Look at what it says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, you were dead, because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all your sins. And He canceled the record of charges against us, and He took it away by nailing it to a cross. Now, the time that this was written, the common practice of the day was for anybody who has been convicted of a sin, was to write out a record of their charges and nail it to the door of the jail, right? And it was there for any passerby to be able to come and see who was condemned and what their crimes were. That's the imagery that Paul is pulling from. These people understood that if there was a criminal and they were condemned, their, their crimes were written down and nailed to the door of the jail. So Paul is pulling from that common imagery to say that all of us have this long and very ugly record of charges, don't we? All of these sins in which we have committed, but instead of this long list of our sins being nailed to the prison that you and I deserve, our sins our record of charges were placed upon Jesus, and he was nailed to the cross instead to pay for them. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity. The sin, the record of charges of us all to fall upon him. And the reason that Paul uses and employs this court of law language that he does quite often, it's not just here in this text, we find it in other places. The reason that he does this is to draw our attention to the fact that there is a judge and there will be a judgment, and the books will be opened and every man's record of charges will be brought out and everybody will be judged and have to answer for every single sin except for those whose record of charges are stamped, paid in full in the blood of Jesus Christ. So there will be a day when I'll stand before the judge and somebody will say, pull out the record of charges against him. Let's see him get Tripp's record of charges up here. And I kind of envision that there's probably like some smart aleck angel in the corner being like, we're going to be here all day with this guy because his record of charges, look at him, have got to be really, really long. But then from the right hand of the Father, Jesus will speak up and say, you're not going to find them because they're not here because I nailed them to a cross. That's the point. That Paul is getting to. And so, the point has been made that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Paul will use the rest of the chapter to tell us that there is no separation from Christ either. Look now at the fifth and final of these rhetorical questions in verse 35. Verse 35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ. You see, hardship in this world can cause us in our weak moments to doubt, can it not? To wonder, is God really for me? Is is He still with me? Hardship has that way, doesn't it? Of making us feel alone. When you're going through it, you have this sense that you're in it By yourself. And so the question that's being posed here, is there anyone or anything, any level of difficulty of hardship that is powerful enough to separate us from Jesus Christ and His love? And then Paul gives us a sample list of adversaries or adversities that might cause someone to question if God has abandoned them. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or even the sword? Will death separate us from the love of Christ? And I want you to notice how Paul answers the question in verse 36. He answers it by quoting an Old Testament passage from Psalm forty-four, twenty-two. He says, Well, the answer to whether hardship and even death will separate us from Christ, he says, For our sake, as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's answer to the hardship listed in verse 35 is, in essence, saying, It's not really a big deal. We Christians are being put to death. All day, every day. And when people that aren't Christians look upon us, they see us as sheep headed to a slaughter. They look at us and go, Those guys are getting killed every day anyway. And we have to remind ourselves that this is no arm's length theology from Paul. This is all stuff that he had been through and was going through. And it was timely for the Christians in Rome as well because they were about to go through this. And about three years after this is written, Nero comes to power and he unleashes his fury against the Christians. And so Paul's answer to all of these things, hardship and even death, is that we're more than conquerors because of the work and the faithfulness of Christ. Look at verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loves us. Not that we're just going to scrape through it, but that we would overwhelmingly conquer, not because of any power or fortitude on our own, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are assured of an overwhelming victory, and we have no grounds then to doubt. And even death, and all of the hardships of this world, even if they lead to death, it's not really a big deal, because if we're put to death, we still win. 1 Corinthians 2.9 It is written, Things which eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Oh, what's the matter? You're going to die? It says that there's something that we haven't seen or heard of or even been able to imagine is what God is preparing for us. And later in that same book, Paul would mock death by saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. He says we're getting put to death all day, every day. It's not a big deal because we're taken care of because God has got us. That's the point. And Paul starts then verse 38, which is important as he kind of closes out the chapter now. He starts verse 38 with a proclamation of faith by saying, I am convinced. And what I want to point out about this is when he says, I'm convinced, it's in the present tense Greek. It means that I remain convinced, meaning in light of all of the struggles in light of all of the hardship of this world, I remain, I am still convinced of God's love. and that's a big statement coming from Paul knowing all that he has been through. We have a, a small list of not all of the hardships, but many of the hardships that he had been through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just listen to what it says. He says, "I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number." he goes. I can't even name how many times I've been beaten, often in danger of death. Five times I've received the Jews' 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Who gets shipwrecked three times, guys? If you get shipwrecked three times, don't get on a boat anymore. I spent a night and a day in the deep, meaning he was lost at sea for a whole night and day. I have been in frequent journeys, in dangers of rivers, in dangers of robbers, in dangers of countrymen, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers in the sea, and in dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from, a, from such external things, There is the daily pressure on me of my concern for the churches. And in light of all of that, Paul finishes chapter 8 by saying, I am convinced. I'm still convinced. I remain convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. And that's the point. The whole thing was written. He's walked us all the way through from the bad news to the good news to the life that we're meant to live. And now He takes us to the crescendo of it to give us the assurance of God's love, God's commitment, and God's faithfulness. The whole point of what Paul is saying is God's got you. He's got you. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, You see what he's saying? We got like a double-fisted grip on you, man. When you come to Christ, it's like, I got you. For anybody in here going, I don't know if I'm going to make it all the way to the end, he's telling you, I got you. If you doubt my commitment, look to the cross. If you doubt my faithfulness, my love, look to the cross. I've got you. We're pretty much done. But I want to finish by reading just a a portion of a hymn. This was written in 1871 by a Scottish hymn writer by the name of John Campbell Sharp. And uh, this is what he wrote. Beautiful hymn. From noon of joy to night of doubt, our feelings come and go. Our best estate is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood of feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But thou, O Lord, thou changest not. The same thou art always. This is the part that I like. I grasp thy strength, make it my own. My heart with peace is blessed. I lose my hold and then comes down darkness, and cold unrest. Let me no more my comfort draw from my failed grasp of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. That's awesome. I wish I wrote stuff like that. That's so cool. The point is that sometimes we think it's about us. There's a point where we are to abide in Christ and draw as near as we can to Him. But sometimes we think it's about us holding on to Him. But the proclamation of Scripture is that I am confident of this very thing, that He who began the good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ. And that's what Paul is telling us. God's got you. If you belong to Him, if you're His child, He's got you. He foreknew you before the foundations of the earth. He made the way of your salvation. He's the one that called. He's the one that forgave. And He will be the one that will glorify you on the day that He calls you home. Let's pray. Lord, there's little to say at this point other than we love You and we're thankful for these truths. And to take then the truths of your glorious word and turn them back into worship. To dwell on the promises that we have just read. Who's going to separate us from your love? No one. No worry of this world. No pain of this life. Not even death. We are more than conquerors in You. Because we have You for all eternity. Lord, I pray now that You would establish these truths in our heart. That You have us in Your grasp. The Father has us in His grasp. And we are Yours. Eternally, because of the work you did. And now we have nothing less to do than worship. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.